Well, hello, everybody. My name is Rich Conwisher. It's my privilege to serve as the senior pastor at Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Atlanta, Georgia. So glad that you have chosen to join us for our webinar today on confronting Christianity. And so honored today to be joined by Rebecca McLaughlin, the author of that book. And so excited to be a part of a journey of exploration and questions. And um, let me go over a few housekeeping things before we ask Rebecca to join us and to jump into the conversation. Uh, you've got two different tabs on your webinar, if you're familiar with this. Uh, one's called chat and the other one is called Q&A. Um, the Q&A is for questions. You won't necessarily see those, but I'll get a list of all the questions that come in. You can throw in a question at any time. You don't have to wait till we get to the Q&A portion. So I'm gonna interview Rebecca, we're gonna have a conversation. And then when we get to the end, we're gonna be able to go over some of the questions that you've asked. So don't wait, feel free to populate that with your questions. And then we want this to be as interactive as possible. And while there's gonna be two of us that are having a conversation for the vast majority of this webinar, uh, we'd love for you to participate in the chat. And so. When, uh, when something comes to you and you think that that's great and you wanna throw in uh, I agree or an amen, uh, we would love for you to participate and to share your thoughts as we're going through this journey together. So make sure you jump in with both feet. I'm gonna begin us with a word of prayer and then I'm gonna ask Rebecca and I to kick off the conversation together. Our gracious God, we're so grateful for the chance to share together, to learn, to grow to stretch our minds and our hearts and to be available to you in whole new ways. Lord, I ask that you would cause us to think that we would learn today and that we would be confronted by the gospel that you pose to each and every one of us. And so I pray all of these things in Jesus' name. So let's welcome Rebecca McLaughlin and she's with us now. And uh, if you want, you can even do a little wave through one of the animations you have um, through through this and uh, welcome her to be a part of this. We're so glad that you're with us, Rebecca. I'm delighted to be here in the weird virtual way that yes, we are exactly. here. <laughs> exactly, now tell us where you are right now. Right now, I am in Cambridge, Massachusetts, or New Cambridge as I like to call it, because mm -hmm. it's New England, so it should be New Cambridge. Right, and uh, I can tell your thick Boston accent right now. Yeah, yeah, you can. I've lived here for 12 years and my sister, who still lives in England, has been watching me like a hawk to see if my accent changes. And it hasn't because she would be laughing at me if it had. Well, mockery is uh, an advantage to helping to keep us in line in certain regards. Um, so tell us just a little bit about yourself and, and your background. Certainly. I grew up in the UK. Um, my mum came from a Catholic family. My dad came from a Church of England sort of church going family both sides very mixed in terms of either attendance or actual Christian convictions. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I grew up uh, from the ground up in, in a sort of funny mishmash of Christian traditions. Um, I was baptized as an infant, so it's always fun doing stuff with Presbyterian folk over here, because I now actually go to a Southern Baptist church or a Great Commission Baptist is now called, or newly uh -huh. now called, I think, church here in New England, just because it's a fabulous church. But I was baptized as an infant and um, absolutely believe that that's uh, the, the right way to go. Uh -huh. um, and from when I was at least nine uh, and potentially earlier, but I recall very clearly from when I was nine, being sure that Jesus was the only person I could actually depend on. 
that anything else could be gone in a moment any illusion of security or permanence that i could have been trusting in wasn't actually real there were various hard things happening in in my family at that time but it was very clarifying for me that actually jesus was the the only person i could truly rely on and that conviction hasn't changed uh, in in the years and decades since um I, I had the privilege of going to quite kind of academic um schools in england we don't call them high schools we call them schools and then they call universities universities so it's all very confusing terminology very but, confusing um, and a public school is different from a private school over there than it is here oh gosh so. yeah in in england a public school means a very expensive boys boarding school <laughs> Yeah. Let me ask you another quick English question. Why do why why do Brits think that smashed up peas is some sort of delicacy? Oh, do you know that's just profoundly morally wrong. I'm British to the core, but mushy peas, it's actually a little bit of a north-south divide thing here. You know how in America there are things that people in the north think and things that people in the south think. In the UK, there is also that divide that has a very different cultural resonances. And mushy peas is a northern thing. My mum's family is all northern, but I didn't get the mushy pea gene. Right. <laughs> so good. So good. Should I carry on talking about Jesus or should we focus on the mushy peas? Have you ever been far enough north into Scotland where you've had haggis? I mean, we're Presbyterians. We got to talk about this. Yeah, I've been north. I, I've absolutely, I've been to the highlands of Scotland. But uh -huh. I, I think I've had haggis, okay. knowingly. <laughs> but uh, I, I wouldn't say I relished it. I had a friend of mine while we were in Scotland the last time who uh, there was a golf bet and the threat of the golf bet was that the loser had to eat haggis. So um, it just as mockery can sometimes be a motivator. So can uh, so can that we're thrilled to have you a part of a, the journey with us and going to be with us for the next six weeks. And um, and so much of before we dive into the 12 questions and your book and things like that. Tell us, even though your your journey began young, tell us a little bit about like maybe some high points in your journey of faith. Gosh, so many. I've having been a Christian for a long time, um, so many, so many wonderful things. I, I think this is less of an individual high point, but something I've been reflecting on recently that I've spent quite a lot of time for almost as long as I can remember talking with really smart, or in the England we say clever. Smart means well-dressed, nicely presented. But in America, really smart. Brilliant. Um, Non-Christians mm -hmm. who have what they see as quite good reasons for not being persuaded by Christianity. And I've had the chance to, to both meet and read the works of all sorts of you know, atheists and agnostic um, academics and intellectuals. And the more that I have read, the more I've become convinced that Jesus is actually the only hope that we have in this world. Uh, I don't know if that's a sort of anti-deconversion story. Maybe, maybe it is. Uh, but, but for me, that question that Jesus, when, when he asks his disciples, when lots of people are kind of falling away and he says, you know, what about you guys? And I think it's Peter says to him, Lord, where else should we go? You have the words of eternal life. And I feel very much like those of us who are following Jesus today, if we look honestly at the alternatives, we will say, huh, where else have we to go? Which is not to say Jesus, I, I don't want that to be misheard as I don't think that Jesus is, is beautiful and compelling. Right. Um, but I just want to make clear that 
he is beautiful and compelling. And actually, when you look at other options, even the things which as Christians can kind of make us squirm in our, in our hearts, when we look at the other options, Jesus is so much more beautiful and compelling than any other possibility. My revelation was a little later than nine years old for you, but my journey was similar in the sense of that there came a point where I realized that um, if, if Jesus isn't true, I don't know what really there is to live for and to die for. And yeah. amazed uh, by that conviction welling up within my soul and yeah. what, a, what freedom and joy is on the other side of that conviction. Yeah. That so much of the beauty of your book is about um, the intellectual credibility of the gospel. Tell us, uh, first of all, congratulations on your on your work confronting Christianity um, and the accolades it's received. I was talking with my predecessor at the church here, a deep and thoughtful man by the name of Vic Pence, and he shared with me that, um, and Vic's very wide read, I agree, it's one of the best primers and introductions to some of the basic questions the apologetics and challenges that are posed to the Christian faith. So just really commend you on the work that you've done and the research and your articulation. Tell us why you wrote the book. Well, I, I feel like I'm almost more of a curator than an author in, in confronting Christianity, funnily enough. I, I, the, and this is part of the reason why I wrote the book. I spent nine years working with an organization called the Veritas Forum, mm -hmm. where a lot of what I was doing was trying to sort of weed out or discover Christian professors at, at leading secular universities um, and get to know them, figure out their faith story, what their, how, the relationship between their faith and their area of research and helping them both kind of emotionally and practically uh, to figure out ways to articulate their faith in relation to their work in the university context. And after nine years of doing that, I found that I had what felt like a a roadmap of where the the big questions really are and and who the the leading christian thinkers are in fields as diverse as physics and history and psychology and philosophy and that i didn't want to keep this information to myself because i think there's a there's a massive information gap between the, the extraordinary christian scholars who god has placed in every field that supposedly has discredited christianity both in the US and across the world. And, you know, those of us sitting on, on, in the pews on a Sunday morning, and especially those who don't yet know Jesus, um, there's this ex extraordinary kind of information gap. So I, I partly recommend Christianity to, to close that gap and to expose readers to the amazing people who I'd had the chance to meet and whose ideas I got to kind of steal. I don't know. Uh, I used to believe that magpies did indeed go around stealing shiny things to put in their nests. Apparently that's a myth, <laughs> but I feel mm -hmm. a bit like the mythical magpie who was going around thinking, oh yeah, that and that and that, and this connects up with that. And we can kind of weave all those into a nest of ideas that will help us then to think about these, these major objections to Christianity. I loved even uh, the dedication of your book. Will you share with people uh, who you dedicated your book to and, and why that was? Yeah, I, I think it's dedicated to, well, it is definitely de dedicated to Natasha, who's my, my best friend, who's not a Christian, um, and all my other fiercely intelligent friends who will do me the honor of reading this book. Mm -hmm. I think no, there's a line in somewhere in there about who, who disagree with most of what I have to say. Um, having spent quite a lot of time in, in university and in, in school settings, where I was often you know, one of a few believers, um, I know well quite a few people who I, I really respect intellectually, 
uh, and as I say, who have their own kind of, on the face of it, good reasons for not being followers of Jesus. And I think a mistake that, that we can sometimes make as Christians is to think anyone who disagrees with us must be either stupid or morally bankrupt. <laughs> I think particularly in the, the, the sort of political world that, that we live in, it's very easy to, to demonize or, or diminish those who deeply disagree with us. Mm -hmm. And I know all, all sorts of people who, who I really respect. Now, I think they're profoundly wrong. Right. And I think this is the other the mistake that we can make on the other side is to think that in order to love and respect somebody, we, we need to affirm what they believe. Right. And actually, the people who I respect the most, if I disagree with them, I'm most likely to kind of debate it with them because I right. actually respect what they have to say and you know respect their mind. And I, and I respect them as a, as a thinking person who might change their mind, might change my mind. Um, and yeah, Natasha is, has been my best friend since we were 16. And she moved to the UK from Russia. I'd grown up in a sort of com you know, communist environment. Um, they were some faith in her family and for some time seemed seem to be professing faith, uh, but, but very much turned away from that in her early 20s. And um, we've re remained very close. And so I, I was writing the book first and foremost for all of my non-Christian friends who it's you know a chance for me to say hey i know you think that i believe crazy things is why yeah. uh, and and then to share that with with you guys as you seek to to witness to non-believing friends um and i think often as christians as well we don't give ourselves enough space to wrestle with questions right. and we kind of tuck things away and I, I noticed that even for me there were some questions that were sort of hovering in my peripheral vision and that I needed to take them from that spot where they were sort of there, but I didn't really want to look at them and look at them head on and say, okay, let's, let's look at this. And in every case, I think that the more closely you look, the more compelling Jesus becomes. That's right. One of the things that we uh, prize here at Peachtree is a holy inquisitiveness. Mm. Um, you know, we have four things that we hope that people become grateful, available, curious, and encouraging. And I, I love the aspect of, of your journey that, that the more curious, the more read, the more that you read, the the hungrier and the more sure that that you became of uh, of Jesus's true identity. When you start out the the book in the introduction, you talk about two different dreams, two different visions. You want to kind of just unpack that or summarize that for us? Yeah, I start the book with John Lennon's uh, song "Imagine." Mm -hmm. which had recently been sung at the Winter Olympics, I, I think it was, um, when I was writing it. And, and I think captures much of, of the spirit of what many non-believers think, uh, which is, you know, really, we would be better off without religion. I mean, that's part of, a core part of that, that vision, that we could achieve a true brotherhood of man if only we could shed religious division and belief. Mm -hmm. um, I think that vision rings extremely hollow, especially when, I mean, one, one example, when we look at communist regimes that have very strongly renounced religion and sought for a brotherhood of man and terrible things have followed. Um, and I think there are other ways in which that, that vision just, just hasn't actually um, represented the majority of, of humankind because much as you know 40 odd years ago 
people thought that as the world became more modern and more educated, more scientific, that religious belief would naturally decline. It hasn't happened. Yeah, you refer so, to that as the, or what, it's not your term, but the secularization hypothesis. Help, help people to understand what that theory is. Yeah, so I know about 40 years ago, sociologists of religion thought that as globally the world modernized, it would also secularize. Mm -hmm. And the reason they thought this primarily was that that's what had happened in Western Europe. And so where Western Europe led, the rest of the world must follow. Right. And, and when we look back at that now, it seems like incredibly kind of parochial and white Western centric. Maybe even but arrogant. I, yeah, but, but actually that, that was the thinking. And, and it was kind of like, let's slightly ignore what happens in America because America's just weird. So right. look at what happened in Western Europe. Uh, modernization spawned secularization. And so that's clearly what's going to happen globally. And I think that that sort of secularization hypothesis is still very much entrenched in a lot of people's thinking and actually particularly in the university right. where there's this assumption that it's not even just a, a diagnosis, it's also a prescription. It's like not just what is going to happen, but what should happen. Uh -huh. That clearly the, the sort of Richard Dawkins mentality of you, know, you, you grow up, you, you start to become educated, you, you take science seriously, et cetera, and you, and you shed religious belief. And one of the big kind of upsets <laughs> of the last 40 years in the academic world is that this hypothesis has just failed. Mm -hmm. it, not only is it the case that today like, religion hasn't declined as people thought it would, but that actually if we look from now for over the next 40 years to, to 2060, experts are anticipating an increasingly religious world where Christianity will remain the, the largest global belief system about 30, rising from 31 now to about 32% of the world identifying as Christian. Um, Islam growing significantly from about 24% to 31%, making it actually a very close competitor with Christianity. Uh, Hinduism and Buddhism both declining slightly. And then, which is the real shock of the proportion of people who don't identify with any major religious tradition, including atheists, agnostics, and people who just check none if you gave them a census form and said, you know, which religion are you? The proportion of those folks globally is set to decline from 16% to 13% right. in, in the next 40 years. And, and part of what's going on there is that religious people have more kids. Right. And that's true in the US and it's also true globally. But, but actually in another piece of what's going on is, is what's happening in China, where you know, the, the, very much the global epicenter of atheism at the moment, and, and that prescribed from, from the government. But the church in China growing so fast that experts think that by 2025, there'll be more Christians in China than in America. Right. And one at least of the leading experts of sociology and religion in China thinks that China could be a majority Christian country by 2060. Wow. That's, so, so what, what's happened is in the headlines and it's not the prevailing kind of, you know, kind of understanding of the way that things are going. And in fact, in your book, you talk about how that, you know, a lot of the times there's a great deal of press that goes to, hey, here are the numbers of people that are leaving church, which are true, like nobody's disputing that fact, but nobody reports the other side of that equation is the number of non-religious people who are actually becoming religious and in the United States, mostly Christian. Can you want to share with us a little bit about that? Yeah, there's a really interesting report done, I think, by the, the Pew Forum folks um, a few years ago, where they were looking at generation to generation from the last generation to this one. Uh, how has people's religious upbringing or otherwise affected their, their later stated beliefs? 
And they, they found that 60% of people raised Catholic in America continued to identify as Catholic as adults. So 40% no longer identify as Catholics. And yeah, that's a pretty big, big, big loss. Um, when they looked at Protestants, 80% of folks raised Protestant in America continued to identify as Protestant as adults. Now, of course, none of this tells us a whole lot about their spiritual condition, but just right. kind of comparing like with like. And then they looked at also at non-religious people, who people who've been raised non-religious, and 60% of people raised non-religious continue to identify as non-religious as adults. So that's actually the same retention rate as Catholics. 40% of people raised non-religious were then identifying as religious as adults. And you're thinking, well, wait, what, what's going on there? Um, and part of what's going on is that, that being non-religious is actually a very unstable place. <laughs> It's not something that we humans really thrive with. And so often, like actually surprisingly often when people are raised non-religious, they end up switching. And, and if they do, uh, there's a significant proportion that would become Christians. Now, we see the, the demographics uh, of how the, the category of nuns, as they say, N-O-N-E-S, right. N-U-N-S, is growing you know, really quite dramatically, even in the space of a few years. What we don't see is how much switching in and out of that category there is, hmm. uh, both sort of individually, but also generationally. It's not just that, you know, say my kids grew up and rejected their faith, became non-religious, then they had children that like, that will necessarily continue. Actually, I am more likely to raise kids who remain Christians than my, my atheist neighbor is to raise kids who remain atheist, like wow. significantly wow. more likely. <laughs> so. Wow. And it's that's kind just of kind of a bit. shocking thing when you, when you, it's not the prevailing mythology of the day when, when you, when you put it that way. Um, yeah, and do, honestly, part of the prevailing mythology of the day, ironically, is that we over-index on white men. Right. Who, who are the most likely, like disproportionately white men are, are likely to be atheists in America. Um, and both in America and globally, the most typical Christian is a black woman. Hmm. Hmm. And we're going to dive into that some more when we talk about kind of global Christianity. But that some of your research on that I thought was very compelling in you curating that information for us because I wasn't aware as some of those some of those dynamics. But um, we're we're going to look at a variety of questions, uh, like six out of the twelve, where where you pose a difficult question to the Christian faith. And the one of the, your first question in the book is, aren't we just better off without religion? So Rebecca, aren't we just better off without religion? <laughs> uh, empirically speaking, no, we are absolutely not. Why? Um, well, why is the, the actual underlying why is a, a complex, but mm -hmm. let's just look at the, the headlines of the data. And, and I get a lot of this data from a guy named um, Tyler Vanderweel, who's a mm -hmm. professor at Harvard School of Public Health. Um, and he leads the, the Center for Human Flourishing there. And a lot of his research and his group's research is on the, the mental and physical health benefits of religious participation. And it, it turns out that people who go to church once a week or more um, have significantly decreased mortality in the next 15 years than folks who don't. Um, and they are, they are healthier across a whole range of indexes, both physically and mentally. Um, the, the most startling of these differentials is that it, it was a study done of women in America um, comparing those who go to church once a week or more to those who, who never go. And it found that those who never go to church are five times more likely to kill themselves 
than those who go to church once a week or more. In fact, I mean, when I, I, I'd seen Tyler talk about the, the fact that church was a great kind of um, protective against suicide, but I, I hadn't read the actual original paper until last fall. And when I read it, I was like, five times? I mean, I was flabbergasted just kind of drilling into that. And I emailed him and I said, is this really, like, is this really a robust result that it's, it's that big of a difference? And he said, yeah, actually, regular religious participation like that is about the best known preventative action for suicide that we're aware of. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that there aren't people right. who go to church every week who suffer from significant distressing and ongoing depression right. um, and, and even who, who um, get to the point of, of taking their lives. And we probably all know folks in that situation. So none of this is to say, you know, wave a magic wand of, of going to church every week and, and all your you know, mental health challenges will, will evaporate. Absolutely not. But if we just look at, at overall averages, any suicide prevention program that does not strongly encourage people right. to go to church, or, I mean, it's, it's not unique to Christianity. So somebody right. could be going to synagogue every week, um, but somebody actively participating in, in, in a religious service every week uh, is, is incredibly protective mm -hmm. and much more so a lot of these benefits um you know you could say well is it just about the social support like isn't it nice to go once a week meet with the same kind of people like-minded do a similar activity could i just go to the golf club and hang out with the same group and mm -hmm. do an activity we all enjoy together and have the same effect answer is no um i think from tyler's research that accounts for maybe 25 to 30 percent of the the overall impact on on health and happiness um, of regular religious participation so there seems to be something kind of specific right. about religious participation versus other kinds of sort of social interactions so from a from a purely public health standpoint right we're actually secularization is, is a public health crisis it is not good for us and then if we look at other things like pro-social behavior, I mean, even Richard Dawkins, my goodness, I, I reviewed his latest book, which he wrote for kids uh, at the beginning of this year, I think it was when I reviewed it, it was the end of last year. And even he had to acknowledge the data showing that, that people who believe in God and especially people who are actively participating in religious services do actually treat other people better than those who don't. Uh, and that if, if you were a truly unbiased or sort of disinterested atheist right. who wasn't convinced of, of belief in God yourself, your best strategy is to hope that, that everybody else doesn't realize that there is no God. <laughs> because actually, uh, society functions much, much better when people believe that, that there is a God. Wow. And in particular, the, the data shows that people who go to church once a week or more give three and a half times as much to charity as people who never go in America. Now, they don't, they don't actually give half as much as they should do. Mm -hmm. Like really, is, we shouldn't feel smug about that as followers of Jesus. Right. If we look at the, the actual kind of dollars, it is nothing like what Christians should be giving. It's embarrassingly low. But actually, it's massively more secular folk give and some people say well yeah but isn't that just them giving to their churches or just giving to christian organizations actually no if you look at giving to secular charities christians who go to church once a week or more give substantially more than hmm. secular folk do if you look i mean jonathan height who's an atheist um, social psychologist he comments christians give more of their blood than atheists do 
Yeah. And like that's kind of hard to explain unless there's something significant about religious belief versus versus atheism. That's really interesting. I want to remind people that you can throw a question in the Q&A or a comment in the chat. You don't just have to passively listen. We know you're there. We want to hear from you. Um, I've got a couple of more questions here and um, uh, and want to kind of uh, kind of dive into a couple of more of these before we take some questions from uh, from those who are uh, who are patiently listening. Um, one of the things that you talked about was that the in a refutation of that hey we're better off without religion when you look at the core tenets of the christian not just belief but practice of the ways that we're supposed to live and you cited one of those with generosity but you look at forgiveness you look at gratitude you look at all these other things that christianity kind of calls forth from us when we're being true to uh to what jesus is calling us to be and to do and to live and love um you you say that when you look at a variety of these things they show you that this is this is the best way to hurt human flourishing um, in, in the world. So tell us, give us a couple, maybe an example or two about, about that. Yeah, I had a weird experience a, a few years ago when I was starting to read up on sort of modern psychology, um, quite a bit from Jonathan Haidt, who I mentioned a few minutes ago, he wrote a book called The Happiness Hypothesis, Finding Modern Truth in Ancient Wisdom, and also looking at various other um, sort of scholars in, in that field. And my experience was that I would read something and it would kind of be like, breaking news from modern psychology, right. forgiving people is really good for you. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> we've known that for 2000 years, breaking news from modern psychology, serving and helping others can actually be more beneficial for the person helping than for the person being helped. I'm like, gosh, who said something like that? It's more blessed to give than to receive. I'm pretty sure that's somewhere in the Bible or, you know, be talking about self-control um, and how, how self-control it was was linked to all sorts of sort of mental and physical um, benefits for folk, and I'm like, yeah, we hear we hear quite a bit about that in the scriptures, um, and just looking at all the ways in which even the sort of oddly counterintuitive things we read about in the Bible, mm -hmm. like for example, I think it's particularly counterintuitive for us as 21st century Westerners that we don't look for unlimited freedom as Christians. And, you know, Marriage is one example of this. We, we don't, as Christians, we're not sort of led from the scriptures to explore sexually as much as you can with as many people as possible, because that might be right. the way to happiness. We're actually told you should, you should be sleeping with at most one person. And if, if you are, that's one person you're covenanted with for life. Mm -hmm. And that sort of sounds sort of terribly restrictive to modern ears. But actually, if you look at the data, it, it shows that humans really don't do well with unlimited choice. They do really well with commitment, actually. Not right. that we need no freedom, and I think as Christians, we actually we have a, a lot of freedom in many ways, but we need that right balance between freedom and, and, and commitment. Right. Um, and, and that there's a lot of psychological data to show that even for everything from choosing a, a spouse to choosing um, a chocolate to eat out of a variety chocolate box, mm. that we don't do well if we have 30 different choices and, and we're not making a real commitment when we, when we take one. Um, so just all sorts of ways in which I was like, huh, you know, is this an is, is incredible finding from modern psychology or is it something that Christians have known for 2000 years plus? Yeah, no, I love, I love your explanation of that. 
The uh, you cite Jonathan Haidt several times in this chapter and in the book. I'm a huge fan of his in terms of the honesty of his research. And you know, it, as you cited earlier, like he comes from he does he's not coming from a faith perspective. He's just trying to be incredibly honest about mm -hmm. the field of of moral psychology. And he and he basically says that people don't do well if they're not tethered to something that's bigger than themselves. Yeah. What do you, you explain kind of what that means for us? in this question? Yeah, I, I think it explains so much of what we see around us, um, you know, both, both here and, and if you look back over history, that people tend to want to be part of a bigger story than, than themselves. And when everything is about me, myself and I, and finding my identity sort of deep within, rather than locating it at any, any broader narrative, that that tends to be a, a route to sort of withering. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but but humans can kind of grasp onto a number of different larger narratives and sometimes, you know, political systems, but will offer us this this big grand story of of who we are in this in this much greater narrative. Um, and so I think that we can see that that appetite that humans have mm -hmm. um, for yeah, to be part of something bigger. And and as Christians, we are part of the most extraordinary story that has been going on since eternity past and will go into eternity future but also that, that we specifically and individually are woven into and given work to do um i mean height sort of summarizes that that just like plants need sort of air and, and water and, and soil that the humans need love and work and to be part of something bigger than themselves and, and being a follower of jesus gives us actually all of those things yeah you know, one of the fundamental shifts of what's been happening in society is it used to be that you would find and try to conform your life to the truth that was out there to be discovered. And now we, we say that it's only truth that is found within. And the irony is, if you actually believe and live that way, that your only truth is really what's within you, mm -hmm. um, it's, a, it's a path towards self-destruction and despair. Mm -hmm. um, the logical um, implication of that postmodern shift, that late modern shift, is um, it kind of takes us to where we are in society today. Well, we've got a couple of questions that have come in that we want to kind of jump in on. Um, one person asks, "How do you refute the challenge of many non-believers make that most Christians are just a bunch of hypocrites?" Mm. I think first and foremost, I would say yes. I absolutely identify as a hypocrite. Um, I think the Bible is brutally honest with us about what Christians are. And we're not moral heroes, we're moral failures. Right. We're, we're people who recognize that we are so bad that the son of God had to die in our place. So I, I wouldn't want to locate any of this in the realm of, you know, we Christians are better than you pagan folk. Um, just, uh, the, the data does actually tell that story in, in, in certain sort of measurable ways. But I think particularly as we are sharing Jesus with others, we, we never want to come across as saying, um, I think I'm better than you. Uh, I think we more want to model ourselves on Paul who said, Jesus Christ came to the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So it's absolutely not the case that, that Christians are, are better than, than non-Christians at a, a sort of fundamental level. Um, and, and hypocrisy is very much something that you know floats around in our Christian communities and, and frankly gushes out of my own heart. Um, so I think there are many ways in which I, I'd want to say to an atheist friend, yeah, I see why you have that question. And I see a lot of, particularly right now in the public square, we see a lot of Christian 
hypocrites. Um, that's often <laughs> switch on the news and you're more likely to be introduced to a Christian hypocrite than, than not. Uh, I think though we tend to um, fail to ask the question, okay, what are our alternatives here? Um, and, and what when we say a hypocrite, a hypocrite is somebody who says they believe one thing but does something else. Right. So there is a moral standard that they're failing, that their own moral standard that they're failing to live up to and that they're proclaiming with their mouths but they're not actually living with their lives. And then I'd sort of want to wonder like, where do we get these moral standards from? Mm -hmm. Because if we look back at the history of ideas, many of the basic moral beliefs that I share with my non-Christian friend are ones that actually have come to us from Christianity, very specifically. And that when we take Christianity out of the equation, they kind of fall flat on their faces. Um, so yes, I'm a hypocrite. Yes, many Christians are hypocrites. Um, but, but what is this moral standard that we're wanting to hold folks to? Often it's been given to us by Jesus. And so let's look at him, who was frankly the only non-hypocrite I know. Mm -hmm. And Jesus very directly deals with the, hypocrit the hypocritical nature of uh, the religious system of his day mm. and has some has some very straightforward warnings about uh, the nature of how we live that out um, mm. in, in our time that we shouldn't pretend we shouldn't act um, but the fact that the matter is, is held to God's standard we are all hypocrites um, and one time I was in a, a Christmas Eve service when uh, there's this moment in the Christian liturgy where we talk about the, the prayer of confession mm. and the person who was stu stood up and said, there's a reason we need to confess today. And that man right over there pointing to me sitting in the chair, that's because Rich Conwisher is a big hypocrite. You could hear this audible gasp in the congregation. <laughs> he said, but the good news is, is that I'm a hypocrite and you're a hypocrite and we're all hypocrites because we fail to live up to what we profess we believe. And we fail. And he warned you he was going to do that. Yeah, and so so you know he went from almost being fired in the Christmas Eve sermon uh, <laughs> to actually redeeming himself with some good theology. Um, there's a person who asked the question here um, about how do you negotiate um, conversations with your non-believing friends and to be able to do that in kind of such a grace-filled way like it ends up being so combative when these topics kind of come up how do you how do you make that um how do you make that a positive encounter yeah and i think this can happen between christians as well when there are important things about which we disagree hmm. and i think the first thing we need to do if, if if we truly want to have any hope of persuading somebody even if we think it's really hard for us to wrap our minds around why they believe what they believe or why they're saying what they're saying or why they stand for what they stand for we need to do the hard work of figuring, figuring out why. Mm -hmm. And we need to say, we need to be able to say to them, hey, I really see, like, standing in your shoes, I totally see why you think that X, Y, or Z. I mean, for example, I've talked with friends about abortion. Um, many of my non-Christian friends would see being pro-choice as, like, absolute basic moral decency. In their minds they think that the alternative to being pro-choice is being anti-women mm -hmm. pro-rape pro like it's just it, it's very hard for them to wrap their minds around how somebody could be at all um at all care about women or justice and be pro-life now i profoundly care about both women and justice and i'm 100 percent pro-life um but I, I want to start by saying okay i see from, from the, the framework that you're working with and from the things that you've seen, 
from Christians, sort of good and bad. I see why you have the convictions that you have. And, and I don't think that you are either um, stupid or somebody who wants to go around murdering babies. Mm -hmm. um, I, I see why in your mind, this is actually a deeply rooted justice issue and a pro-women issue. Um, and, and I want to kind of sit there with them before I explain to them why I, I actually see this profoundly differently. Mm -hmm. um, there's a, a lot of data to show that if people are listening to somebody who they think of as not being in their tribe, however compelling their arguments or their data, they're not going to listen to them. I mean, we can, you know, politically, you could sit down a, a, a dyed-in-the-wall Democrat and present the most compelling data for a Republican position, and they wouldn't believe it. And conversely, you could sit down with a dyed-in-the-wall Republican, and you could give them all the facts from a democratic perspective, uh, and they wouldn't believe it. If people don't think that we kind of uh, they're identified with us in any way, they're, they're not going to listen to what we have to say. Um, and so I, I think, yeah, the first step is is getting on the same side of the table as somebody and saying, I see why you think what you think, and and here are the things about it that I can affirm. Like, I also really care about women. Mm. I also think that there are some terrible situations that, that women are put into. I also think, you know, all the ways in which we can agree with them and then say, here's why, as somebody who really profoundly cares about women, here's why I actually think that the system we have right now is, is bad for women rather than good. Mm -hmm. But I think we need to do that work first. Well, Rebecca, this has been a great conversation and a great launch to this. We did not get to all the questions today, but I love the participation and jumping in on that. And we're so excited to tackle uh, six of these incredibly difficult topics that are important for us to uh, discuss. And um, and so we're, we're walking away from the question of, aren't we better off without religion, uh, having been informed on a deeper level about that and really excited for this journey and just want to thank you for taking the time to be with us over the course of these uh, next couple of weeks and encourage everybody to tune in next week and for all the people who are watching this on Right Now Media who are watching it on demand after the fact, we hope that you'll take this into groups, that you'll discuss, that you'll wrestle and that you will get a copy of the book, highly recommend uh, the book. It's a great book also, as somebody put in the Q&A, to give away to a friend and to, to start some really interesting and significant conversations together. And so thanks for being with us, everybody, tonight. Rebecca, thank you. And we look forward to next week, everybody. Have a great thanks day. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.